Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 23. Today, you'll hear my interview with Mike McHenry and Seth Urbanic from Wedding Oak Winery. I'm sharing my tasting notes and a bit more information about the two wines that won the judges' selection, the top prizes at the recent Texom International Wine Awards. Plus, I've got all the latest news about the Texas wine industry. Whether you're a regular listener or joining in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. This is cause for celebration. You may have heard that the Texas wine industry had come to a compromise over labeling laws. In the legislative session that just closed, lawmakers from both chambers passed legislation that tightened up Texas's wine labeling laws. The governor signed it into law over the holiday weekend. Starting with the 2022 vintage, Texas wines that are labeled with an appellation, like Texas High Plains or Texas Hill Country, or with a county in Texas, like Terry County, or with a Texas vineyard, like Nara Vineyard, will be required to use 100% Texas grapes. Wineries that use up to 25% grapes from out of state or even from outside the United States can only use the most general label, Texas. Previously, legislative efforts had focused on this level, but by focusing on the more specific upper tiers of Texas wine labels, All parties were reasonably satisfied and agreed to this grape compromise. Kudos to all of those who worked on this legislation. It's been hampering the Texas wine industry for a while, and this is certainly a welcome change. You can read more about it in Michelle Williams' article on winebusiness.com. Here's some news for the readers among you. There's a new book out that chronicles Texas wine pioneer Messina Hoff. It's called Family, Tradition, and Romance, The Messina Hoff Story. In both stories and photos, Paul and Meryl Bonarigo, founders of Messina Hoff, share their journey from starting an experimental vineyard to opening multiple tasting rooms in Texas to transitioning ownership to their son Paul and his wife Karen. Texas Wine Lover website recently had a post that included some of these great photos from their early days. You can get the book on the Messina Hoff website or in their tasting rooms. Summer calendars are filling up. Be sure you get some Texas wine tasting events on yours. The Way Out wineries are ready to kick off the summer. You can join them from June 11th to 13th for wine tastings at each of their eight participating wineries. You can visit the wineries in any order you choose. It's a self-guided wine trail. And at each winery, you will get five one-ounce tastings, a small bite, and an opportunity to play a summer game. If you visit all eight, you'll receive a special gift from Way Out Wineries. And you don't have to just visit from June 11th to 13th because your ticket will be valid for tastings through the end of June. Participating wineries include Barking Rocks in Granbury, Bull Lion in Heiko, Pemberton Cellars in Granbury, Pillar Bluff in Lampasas, Red Wing Dove Vineyard in Hamilton, Sunset Winery in Burleson, Texas Legato in Lampasas, and Wedding Oak Winery in San Saba. Tickets are $35. Another upcoming event that I'll be attending is the Toast of Texas, a celebration of Texas wines sponsored by the Wine and Food Foundation. 
This event takes place on Sunday, June 13th from 2 to 4.30, and over two dozen Texas wineries are participating at this event, which will be held at Stonehouse Villa in Driftwood. There aren't many tickets left, so get yours now. Dorothy Gator and John Brescher are some of the earliest and best American wine writers. They wrote for the Wall Street Journal until 2010 and now write their own column, Love by the Glass. They started International Open That Bottle Night and authored one of my favorite wine memoirs, also called Love by the Glass. Their topic last week was Texas wine, and specifically the sparkling rosé of Tanat made by Bending Branch. They write that Texas is making some very good wine, and they've enjoyed it for many years. After sharing some basic information about the Texas wine industry, they write about Tanat and how it's an unlikely choice for sparkling rosé. Here's a quote from their article. We don't picture Tanat as a rosé, and certainly not a sparkling rosé, although there's no reason it can't be. So when we opened the Bending Branch 2020 Frizzante, which cost $22, we expected to find a perfectly pleasant, somewhat sweet, generic, bubbly rosé. We were wrong. It's lean, angular, and dry. This is a really fine hand. There's some peach on the nose and a bluish tint that's hard to describe. We wouldn't serve this by the pool. We'd serve it with dinner. It's a white tablecloth rosé with good acidity. They've made a rosé sparkler out of Tanat and kept the varietal impressive. The article goes on to give more information about Bending Branch and its founder, Bob Young. I'll link to it in the show notes. New wineries are coming up quite frequently these days. Just this week, I had a story published about Covington Hill Country in High. It's along Highway 290 between Johnson City and Fredericksburg. Covington Cellars is a well-established brand in Washington, where founders Cindy and David Lawson have been making Cab Franc, Sangiovese, and plenty of other varieties for 20 years now. Well, now they're coming to Texas, and Texas is home for Cindy. She's from Houston. You can read the full story on the Texas Wine Lover website. William Chris Wines has released another wine in their Wanderer series that supports various charitable causes. Last year's inaugural effort was a partnership between William Chris and Master Sommelier Craig Collins. It benefited Southern Smoke, a charity that supports the hospitality industry. This year, William Chris is teaming up with wine director and sommelier Ali Schmidt from Austin's Emmer and Rye. This wine will support hunger relief efforts through Feeding Texas, a statewide network overseeing 21 food banks. In a Forbes article on the new wine release, Michelle Williams writes that Feeding Texas is the largest hunger relief organization in the state. The wine is Senso from two Texas High Plains vineyards and 8% Carignan. You can find it at Whole Foods, Central Market, HEB, and Kroger across the state, and it's also available on the William Chris Vineyards website. It's $24. If you order a case through the website, you'll receive two Yeti wine tumblers. Are you looking for a harvest internship? Ben Calais is looking for harvest help at Calais Winery and French Connection Wines. You'll work approximately August through October. Here's what a harvest intern does. They help monitor fermentations, perform punch downs, you sort and crush grapes, clean and sanitize all equipment, load and unload the press, fill tanks and barrels, do basic lab work, and maybe even work in the tasting room. Candidates should have flexible work hours during the harvest period, be able to lift at least 50 pounds on a regular basis, work as part of a team, and you don't even have to have previous winemaking experience, but it is a plus. 
A link to all the news I've mentioned can be found at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. If you haven't already, please sign up for the podcast newsletter on the website at thisistexaswine.com. I've been doing quite a few winery visits and have many more planned in my near future, and I'm going to be sharing my favorites and also giving some additional tips and wine recommendations in the newsletter. There's just not enough time to cover it all on the podcast, so go to the website and get signed up. That's thisistexaswine.com. Now here's what you've been waiting for, my interview with Wedding Oak Winery founder and managing partner Mike McHenry and Wedding Oak's winemaker, Seth Urbanic. Wedding Oak Winery has tasting rooms in San Saba, Fredericksburg, and Burnett. You're about to hear how Wedding Oak is committed to Texas agriculture and small-town Texas. Okay, Mike, let me start with you. Sure. Where does your Texas wine story begin? It began uh, really in 2000 or 99 when um, I met Jim Johnson with Alamosa Wine Cellars, who happened to be down the road from me. And uh, he was looking for somebody to help harvest grapes. I didn't even know there were grapes down the road from me and uh, ended up picking grapes. And as he put it, he, I was the only guy he could never talk out of growing grapes. So uh, and I went to my first grape camp uh, in 99 out of the old uh, A&M facility in Junction. And uh, just something, you know, something cooked and something I really wanted to get involved with more and wisely planted only uh, half of an acre and uh, got started and also was coached by Jim to look at the warm weather varietals and avoid Bordeaux and some of the other varietals that come on the grow grapes in the central part of Texas. And, and so I planted Sangiovese. That was the beginning of it. I lost it to Pierce's disease three years later. So I learned a little bit of lessons about disease in Texas and was content just to grow grapes, expanded the vineyard in 94 or sorry, in 2004, and uh, and continued to grow for Alamos and a couple others. Uh, in 2010, uh, the seed was planted to build a winery in San Saba, downtown San Saba, which is a little oxymoronic since it's a town of 3,000 and a county of uh, 6,000. Uh, but I, I got that project uh, out of the ground, I raised the money through some friends, and we started construction. So it was a shifting gears from growing grapes and content with doing that, having half the year off and going into the wine business. So, um, yeah, so that was, you know, that was the beginning and uh, selected the name Wedding Oak Winery, named it after a 400-year-old tree that's right outside of uh, San Saba. And I love the name and thought later on from a wine naming standpoint, we could have a long time with that. So uh, that was came to Nexus for the name and getting started. So we opened in June of 2012. So that was the beginning of the journey. Just a quick anecdote. Prior, prior to that, I've done like a lot of people had. I was a wine tourist and, and I was introduced to the Napa and Sonoma Wines in 2004 when we moved uh, to Seattle and uh, got hooked on the Northwest Wines in Oregon and Washington State, even over in Idaho. So started, you know, tasting wine from different parts of the U.S., but never dreamed I would end up growing grapes or having a wine. I still have the, the same uh, four acres of grapes, uh, you know, that I eventually extended to. We grow all wrong varietals uh, to make uh, particular wrong style blends or single uh, varietal beyond the acre. 
So you've got now three tasting rooms. That's in correct. Mm-hmm. The original in San Saba, and then you've expanded, I guess, in 2019, you opened Burnett and then also relocated your Fredericksburg tasting room from Wild Seed Farms to a standalone building or a shared building, but mm-hmm. a standalone place. Exactly. Um, what's, what's unique about each place? Well, as it turns out, they're, they're uniquely different. Uh, uh, you know, the, the Fredericksburg operation, uh, we go from a high volume tourist oriented place like Wild Seed Farms to a standalone. So, you know, as the, as the expansion of the T9 winery, critical mass takes place more and more, we're having to, you know, figure out how we're going to attract people in, and then the pandemic came, and that's just sort of what, you know. But it was, a, uh, it was a different type of operation. Burnett, on the other hand, was much more similar to Sinsaba in a historic building downtown. We were recruited by Burnett to come there and open that. So it was a, it was a very different sort of thing, and it was not our intent to open them uh, three months apart. That's just the way the construction ended up happening. Uh, but it did happen that way. And then, of course, five months later, the pandemic came. And what's different about them, um, I think, it is also their strength uh, because it gives people a different experience when they go to the three different locations. Our mission was really to, uh, we knew we could never grow our business where we wanted it to be. Guys, saying and send several loans. Seth, let me turn my attention and questions to you. How did you become affiliated with Wedding Oak Winery, and when? Uh, yeah, so uh, it's a really kind of funny story uh, in that I was—I'm a native Texan. Went to A&M um, and had left the state back in the mid 2000s. And um, quite frankly, uh, there wasn't a whole you know, big Texas wine movement at that time and uh, wasn't really familiar with the changes that had taken place down here. Um, So I had started working in the wine business uh, up in upstate New York in the Finger Lakes region. We do cool climate winemaking, Um, cut my teeth in the wine industry there, Um, did an internship in Australia, uh, and then my graduate degree in enology up in the Northeast at Cornell. And then was working in France, and uh, I had Justin Shiner, who works with the Texas A&M AgriLife, uh, called me up and said, hey, you really need to check out the, the Texas wine industry, and um, and you need to meet Penny Adams, who at the time was the winemaker at Wedding Oak Winery. And, uh, you know, I... I was like, what Texas wine industry? You know, it was, you know, I hadn't even, you know, been abreast of, of everything that had happened. And uh, so I brought my New York wife to San Saba, Texas in the middle of July and said, oh, what do you think, babe? <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> I guess I didn't scare her off too much. Good. She, she loves it. She loves it. Uh, you know, so it's great. And so that was what year? Uh, that was... In 2017, when we were when we first came down here um, to to do a site visit, and then I started working for Wedding Oak Winery in December of 2017. Okay, so I'm guessing in the Finger Lakes you worked with a lot of Riesling. That I is wonder correct. what what do you think about Texas Riesling? Have you had the opportunity to work with Texas Riesling? I have. Um, you know, I was very uh, much against the idea, you know, because it is a cool climate varietal and thrives in cool climates. Um, but one of the things that I've learned more and more about Texas is, is that we can grow just this enormous number of cultivars here in Texas and they thrive. I mean, you know, that this species of grapevine that, that gives us wine, 
um, you know, is nascent, is native to, you know, pretty hot climates, right? And so, you know, all these varietals, even though we have these preconceived notions that they fit in one place and, and only that place, um, there's a, a large number of them that really, really thrive here in Texas. And so when I first got my hands on Riesling, I was like, there's no way, <laughs> there's no way we're going to make, you know, really good wine out of this. And, and it definitely has a different character to it, but um, it doesn't have the bracing acidity that you might find in, uh, you know, a, a, a classical cool climate Riesling, but you'd be surprised at, at, the backbone that it does have and uh i do a lot of lees stirring with it um and and it 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 gives itself a pretty cool character interesting i don't think i've ever had aged texas riesling and i i love old riesling from other regions and so i would love to see how texas riesling would age yeah see if you get a little bit of that petrol a little bit of that uh yeah i love that yeah so Let's talk, uh, Mike, about where you get the grapes for your production, and and how big is your production? Okay, we built the winery originally in 2012, equipped it uh, as a 10,000 case production facility on day one, uh, with the notion that we would, rather than add on incremental equipment later and space and all of that, we would go ahead and build the space now and grow our business into it. So the first year, you know, we produced about 1,250 cases. Uh, as Seth said, under the tutelage of Penny Adams, our original winemaker. And um, the grapes all came uh, pretty much from uh, around uh, the hill country at that time, uh, with a little bit out of the high plains. The two ABAs we buy from today, and we produce uh, pretty close to 10,000 cases today, uh, depending on the year. We're uh, maxed out. Uh, we get the fruit about 60% high plains and 40% hill country. Although this year we just don't know, right? It's just a crazy time. But it's, uh, but that's uh, what a year. Yeah, it is exactly. So the growers are, that we work with are located in, in the high plains and the hill country. And of course that is, as with all, all Texas wineries, that creates some logistical challenges. So we just learn to work there, work with other wineries, learn how to, to organize the shipments of grapes and get them into the shop and start the production. Some of the things that we've worked on, uh, you know, for example, pressing off the whites in the hot plains before we bring them down, things like that, to see if we can maintain quality rather than just volume. I'd like to go a little bit further into that with you, Seth. Can you talk in general? terms about the differences in fruit quality that you get from the high plains and from the hill country? Sure. Um, you know, I, I always make the joke, uh, you know, so here in the hill country, we're at, you know, roughly a thousand feet to 1500 feet above sea level. Um, and then on the high plains, you're anywhere from three to 4,000 feet above sea level. Um, and, and the topography looks entirely different. And uh, I always joke that if there were a state line between the two, I mean, any rational observer would put one there because they, they shouldn't be the same state. They're, they're so wildly different. Um, I think what's really, really interesting about the two, uh, two different regions is that here in the hill country, um, you know, you have this, you know, undulating, you know, earth, right? I mean, it's called the hill country, right? And uh, as a result, I think that we see a lot of micro terroir here in the hill country. So there's, there's a, a very much a difference between something that's grown on the hillside with limestone soil 
as opposed to in, in one of the flatter areas or one of the valleys. And, and so in the hill country, there's, it, it's really fun for me as a winemaker to explore how that micro terroir expresses itself because the grape grown on one side of a highway will be totally different from, you know, the other side of the highway. And, and we as a new wine region here in Texas are, are still really trying to figure out, you know, the ideal site for each one of these numerous grape cultivars that we grow. And so, I mean, we're just at the very, very beginning of this, which is so cool. I mean, like if you're in Burgundy, the, you know, the, the winemakers can tell you, oh, at the top of the hill, the Pinot Noir is different than at the bottom of the hill. And here's why. Well, I mean, we are just at the infancy of, you know, figuring out, you know, what that micro terroir is going to tell us. And then in the high plains, uh, you know, a lot more uniformity in the uh, topography. Um, there is plenty of soil variation, um, but what's really cool there, I mean, you got larger farms that can do, you know, provide enough fruit for commercial production, uh, whereas in the hill country tends to be much smaller vineyards. And, uh, and, and you have a lot of own rooted vines up there, um, which creates a whole new uh, aspect to explore. Um, and again, it, it's part of the same problem is what it, it's a problem and a blessing, right? What, what grapes are really ideally suited to the variations that we do see and, and the two different regions. And, and we're working with dozens of different cultivars. So it, it's like this never ending game of investigation that I hope that my great, great, great grandchildren uh, have figured out just like the French have. And, and they know exactly, you know, what, is 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 ideally suited for Texas, and I hope there's not one answer. Right, I should probably know this, but what is the short story on uh, the challenges with the own rooted vines? Is it disease pressures? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, historically, grape vines were grafted, you know, uh, for for phylloxera resistance, right? And um, and you know, it, there's a lot of folks that have this misconception that if you graft what they call the upper part of the plant is the scion, that if you graft the scion, that the rootstock will change its flavor of the resultant wine. Um, I think that the science would say that's not necessarily true. It can absolutely impact the growth habit, though, and the, the nutrient uptake. So in terms of vine health and fruit quality, rootstock absolutely has a major impact. Does it change the flavor of the grape? Probably not. So, but I mean, there are only a handful of places in the world where you see own rooted vines. I mean, Chile, uh, uh, some parts of Australia and some parts of Washington, but I, I can think of few others that, that have own rooted vines. So that's a, a pretty cool story that we have uh, in its own right. Have you been working with the same farmers in both the Hill Country and the High Plains um, for, for many years, or is that kind of an annual process to find the fruit you want? Well, um, I, I think that the news we got this morning is, is the, the perfect answer to that question. Um, we have established growers that we've worked with, um, you know, before my time here and, and continue to work with. Um, and then we have growers that, that, you know, we, we have to pivot and, and, um, you know, maybe find somebody new that we've not worked with. And, and that just happened to us this morning. And I want to send a shout out to, to Tony and Madonna Phillips, who are some of my absolute favorite people to work with as growers on the high plains. And they just got completely obliterated by a hailstorm last night and, and they have no fruit out there. And, and that was like my favorite white fruit um, that I got in Texas. And, and they're, you know, they won't have any this year. And, and so, 
Now that begs the question, what the heck are we going to do? I mean, all around the world, we see weather impacting uh, grape growing. And, um, you know, you see, you know, people burning fires in Burgundy to keep keep vineyards warm and Napa getting smoked out. And um, honest to goodness, I mean, that's just par for the course here in Texas, that it is the Wild West of grape growing. And there are no guarantees that you're going to get the fruit that you want in the same way that you got it the year before. I mean, between hail and uh, frost late and early, um, you know, uh, I mean, tornadoes, we had a vineyard get wiped out by a tornado. Like, it's just, you know, there, there's no guarantees as to what the Texas fruit supply is going to bring. So we have to be prepared to pivot at a moment's notice and work with cultivars that we've never worked with before and uh, grape growers that we've never worked with before. And and so that can throw all kinds of, of wrenches in your in your plans and um, that, and, and the mindset that I'm going to get this fruit in this condition year over year without fail just doesn't exist here. And that it actually, for me, kind of makes it even more fun. If I may, I think that's also that's also why winemaking matters, because it is not cookie cutter. It is not uniformly the same. And, and that ability to roll with the punch, figure out what the next move is going to be, what separates winemaking. And and I don't want to make light of it. I mean, I my heart is hurting for our growers up in Brownfield, uh, you know, this afternoon. I'm just, uh, you know, uh, demoralized uh, mm-hmm. right now. I am absolutely demoralized because I feel for them as farmers and as friends. And uh, and so it's it stinks. But, uh, you know, we will take that challenge on the chin and continue to push forward. Great. Mike. When you started Wedding Oak and originally with Penny and then continuing with Seth, what, it, what was your winemaking philosophy or what, what did you, what kind of wines did you want to make and how? Well, I think uh, that's a great question. In the beginning uh, and, and maintained it ever since is we always wanted to be 100% Texas. So that was the starting point. And with the exception of 2013 when we lost all of our whites in Texas and we bought our first Albarino outside the state, and that launched us into a, a whole new winemaking or bridal area of having the Texas grown Albarino. But, but we, we stayed with that. But being small growing into larger, the impacts of some of this wasn't as profound as it is as you get, you know, as you grow. And in the beginning, my, you know, my, my philosophy is as a founder and a managing partner, I, I wanted the wines to be consistently good and let the consumer determine what excellence looks like as opposed to me deciding, well, this is an excellent wine or this is that. Let's let the consumer determine through their actions, through their pocketbook, uh, you know, I like these or I don't like these or whatever, but to be, to be as close to flawless as we could be in the winemaking side. And just heard it a thousand times as others have. If I made the wines, we would have no customers. That is not what I do. Uh, and I enjoy growing grapes, but even that's limited. So I, I, my, um, my love is the business itself and watching it happen and grow. That's, that's the passion. And uh, so the, so the winemaking has to be consistent with it. And that philosophically that was it. And if it's going to be Texas fruit, then that tells us, you know, as we're still learning today, what the varietals are going to be and what are we going to do to, we started off with Rhones and some Italian varieties, and, and uh, you know, and that's how we just kept expanding 
into other varietals. But being 100% Texas, then you know we knew we what we were not going to grow properties. And that drove the then that drove the winemaking. That drove the winemaking. You've been a leader in the Texas wine industry for years, including leadership stints with the Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association. What encourages you about the Texas wine industry where we sit today? Oh, I think the, I think the obvious answer for me is that the, the people that went before me, before us as a business, they laid that foundation. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it was a, uh, Tim McPherson's father with that first Sanjuese or the Allers at Paul Creek or the Beckers or there's a, there's a pretty, there's a short list of some pretty powerful people that have been involved and watching them go through what they went through to get started. And then for us just to be able to learn from their, um, to learn from their uh, wins and losses, you know, how to do it a little bit differently. And, and that allowed us then to, not make some of those same mistakes, uh, or at least have that comfort to know that we're not the first ones to, to go do it. That's the real pioneers. And then I think the other thing that really makes it exciting and encouraging is the, the new blood that's arriving almost daily uh, into our industry. Uh, people like Seth, but also many others that are, that are involved in it at different levels. And the word's out, you know, Texas is not only a great place to live and raise a family and do business, our wine industry is a great place to be. So we're now seeing that infusion of talent coming in. And, uh, yeah, just, just things, just things like Great Camp or, or the symposium, the Texas Hill Country Winers, but some, or the annual conference that Twiggy does and things like that that are, that are becoming bigger and bigger and more well received. And, uh, that's, uh, that's exciting for it. I mean, it's a, what, a 40 year old industry now, something like that. And I've been involved with it. I say I have to pinch myself for 20 years just on a peripheral basis. So I think that's exciting part. So long after I'm gone and we're out of this or what we're doing something else, then you know, it'll be going on. It won't be one of these things that's limited to two or three people. Maybe happen. Seth, I read an article, an interview that you did for Texas Wine Lover website. And you said that people always ask, is winemaking an art or a science? And that it's both, but at different times. That the science part comes in during fermentation, and the art part comes in during blending. So I wonder if you can maybe highlight a couple of wines that you would like to talk about that are maybe a couple single varietals and a couple of blends that you're proud of in your portfolio. Sure. I mean, you know... I think it's funny, you know, you, you brought up that, that question that everyone asks, right? Is, is winemaking art or science? And, and yeah, no, I would submit, I would give the same answer that it is both, but at different times. Um, I, I try to be as scientifically driven as I can uh, because it is hard to grow grapes and make wine here in Texas. Um, now, there's a time to lean on the science yeah, during fermentation, absolutely. Um, you know, that you have to, in my opinion, take a, a scientific approach to have a healthy fermentation. But then, you know, that art comes in uh, when you're making your picking decisions because the chemistry won't tell you everything. And then when you're assembling a wine, you know, you know, as your final product, and, and there's no scientific tool that I've ever found um, that is going to make a wine taste better, right? So, um, you know, I, I think that, 
you know, for a wine that was all art, maybe was, uh, you know, so we have two uh, wines that we just bottled out of High Top Vineyard here in the Hill Country, located in High, Texas. And, um, you know, the, the fruit comes in immaculate. And, and, and I love that kind of winemaking because it makes my job really simple. It's just get out of the way, you know, and the fruit is really perfect and you can let it really speak for itself. I mean, that Ionico is grown on limestone soil and it tells its own story. And, and so I don't have to, to, you know, rely on the science to make that fruit look any better than it already is. Cause it's beautiful. And, uh, and so for me, that's, that's the expression of place and it's all art and, and I love it. Um, that being said, I mean, there are other wines that we get in that, like I said, it's it's hard to make wine here. Wine chemistry, even from the best grape growers sometimes, is a little wacky here. And, and I'm, a, I'm a student of, of chemistry, and I understand that well. And so sometimes you have to, you know, make some changes to the wine so that, that it's going to taste and, and be that expression that you want. And, and so, um, you know, uh, an example, I mean, you know, so we get... Roussan from the High Plains, and it's it makes beautiful wine. Um, but you know we have to 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 make it crafted into that wine that we want. It isn't going to make itself. Um, and and so uh, for us, I mean, like I said, an expression of art, Ionico or Tanat. I mean, they make themselves. Um, but some of these other wines, you know, we have to. The winemaker is very present. It, I call it a wine of purpose, and um, you know that it's a wine of intent that we know what we want it to be and it's my job and my team's job to get it there. Excellent. Did, do you do more blending here in Texas as a result of the vintage variation than you have in other places where you've worked? Yeah, no question. I mean, uh, you know, here in the United States, we're allowed 25% of a wine to be. So if I call a wine Cabernet Sauvignon or Roussan, for example, I'm, I'm allowed 25% uh, can be other stuff in order to, to, for blending purposes. And I think that, um, like I was talking about with a wine of purpose, I think that you have to go in and understand that, that yeah, you're going to have to, to make some changes down the way that if, if, if the wine you made, you know, lacks a component that you want it to be a completely rounded picture, then you can't be afraid to reach into your toolkit and, 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 and make some changes and do some blending, uh, to get it to where you want it to be. Makes sense. Changing directions slightly, Mike, I'd love to ask you, what do you anticipate the next few years will bring for Wedding Oak Winery? Any specific goals or plans that you have in the next few years? Well, given that uh, where I thought I would be at the beginning of 20 and where I am at the beginning of 21 with the unknown, uh, uh, I would say that we're, we're going to continue to plan for contingencies and there was to be financially responsible and, and position ourselves not to be caught unawares if that's possible. But we we want to leverage the locations that we have now and continue to use those as the growth vehicles. We are a direct-to-consumer model. We do almost 100% of our business in direct-to-consumer. So we want to see that continue to uh, to grow as the Texas wine consumer uh, critical mass groups. We want to be able to tap into that. And we love where we're located, the three locations on three of the four major arterials in the whole country, uh, 290, 190, and 281. So we like that location, and we just think we need to continue to leverage that strength and build on it 
and uh, do it through uh, obviously the right people working and putting a great team together continue to have to help make that happen. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm more in a three to five year lookout, two to, two to four year lookout as far as you know, where we're going to spend our money and how we're going to position ourselves. But it's going to be to continue to grow that DTC segment. And, and at the same time, you know, not, not getting locked up in a mindset where we, where we don't see another opportunity present itself. Uh, you know, that, that we don't even know what it looks like today that may change in two or three years. So we want to be sensitive to that. I think we just, um, for me, I just want to make sure we manage the business well and not get caught. So don't, don't get too crazy with expansion goals and things like that and get caught in the words. Probably the, you know, the, where the bigger spin is going to be for us coming up, which is an important part of the outlook, is going to be in expanding the winemaking. And so while making storage, cellar, and barrel hall capacity there to meet that growth. And not, not put money into new ventures or new, new mm-hmm. directions. Or, you know, spending money in that direction. So you're primarily direct to consumer. So I assume that means that you have limited retail and restaurant availability? That's correct. By intent. I think we all, I mean, I certainly did. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'll give you an example. Way back, that we had a chance to, to put our uh, wine uh, into uh, Carabas on Kirby in Houston. And that was great for the first order that I self-distributed until I started doing repeat orders. And I thought, we need to be driving to Houston to deliver a couple of cases. And that really isn't our, that's not our state. We, uh, we, you know, we, and we have nothing against those that do. It's just not ours. Wine club is important to us. And you ship to multiple states? Yeah, well, no, we ship to about um, eight to 12 states that are depending uh, that we have permits for. Uh, but that's a great, that's a great point. And, and, and when, in the original business plan that I, that I put together, I, at that time, I, I looked at what the volume of consumption was of Texas wines versus non-Texas wines in Texas, whatever they called Texas back then. And I made the determination from a growth picture that we never had to leave the borders of Texas in order to, to meet our goals. There was, there was more about converting people from non-Texas wines to Texas wines. And if they found what they liked and they enjoyed it, and they could get that, you know, in a day or two by FedEx or UPS, then, then there's really no need to go out of the state to sell wine. Just the way we operate, because we're not trying to distribute it to restaurants. In other parts, those that do, we think that's great. It's just not where we need to be. Yeah, it's definitely a big state, and we just need to keep converting a wine drinkers and b yeah. Texas wine drinkers, right? Yeah, I mean, it's and I'll tell you the statistically. Back when I looked at, I had two thousand and nine statistics. I was working with it was ninety two percent were drinking non Texas wines in Texas, and it was something extraordinary number of cases. So it was like, okay, there's there's that window or that uh, amount of opportunity out there to penetrate, let's go penetrate that. And we have very slowly, you know, <laughs> it's still a big, it's a growing buy. And that, and that segment for Texas, I, I don't know where it stands today as a percentage basis, but it's definitely gotten better as the time has expanded. Well, did you start drinking Texas wine right off or what were you drinking before Texas had a wine industry? 
well, I mean, my background was primarily in, in, in drinking California and, and uh, Oregon and Washington and British Columbia wines. And really, mm-hmm. that's where that's where that's where my mind was. Today, I'm I'm very partial to Texas, of course. Yep. What about you, Seth? What What did you drink before Texas wines? I'm sure you uh, drink around the world now, but yeah. Uh... I have a, a special place in my heart for sparkling wine. Uh, I love, love champagne. Um, however, uh, you know, I think the old adage goes, it takes a lot of great beer to make wine. Uh, you know, so uh, <laughs> you know, after being covered in sticky grapes all day, um, you know, it, it, it's not always my weapon of choice, but, uh, yeah, I, I do think it's really cool. Um, you know, as I touched on earlier, uh, that, you know, I, I have these preconceived notions of what I want to work with in Texas, and and there's so many different grape varietals out there. That you try other winemakers, and you you put uh, a grape varietal that maybe I say, oh, I have this notion that I don't like it, and you put put it in the hands of the right winemaker, and suddenly uh, it'll it'll totally change your perception of that that wine and 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 what it's going to be. So, um, you know, I, I think. As winemakers and as consumers uh, of Texas wine, it's it's all you have to keep this really open mind and and kind of smash some of these preconceived ideas that you might have about what it is or is not going to be. Do you get to do some sparkling winemaking at Wedding Oak? Unfortunately, I don't do any method champenoise yet, uh, but well, well, we're, we we we've talked about it. Excellent. Yeah. Well, do you anticipate any um, any big changes with the varieties that you work with, or anything else in the next few years? Yeah, absolutely. And 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 again, you know, I I, I made that comment just now about how you know you have a preconceived notion about a certain wine grape and, and then you put it in the hands of a, a winemaker and it's different from what you expected. Right. And, and so now I have to play that own game with myself um, because of the, the wild Texas freeze that we had this year. Um, you know, I mean, we it got down really, really cold in February. And then what most folks don't realize is it was about two weeks ago that it got down to about 28 degrees on the high plains. And that's after bud break. That's a late frost event, a very late frost. In fact, the latest in Texas history or recorded history. And, um, you know, and, and so that did more damage to grape growers. And then we had a giant hailstorm last, just last night. So, um, those, those high plains growers have been afflicted by a vicious 2021 vintage, uh, already. And we're just, barely getting started. And, and so, um, as the main supplier of fruit in the state on the Texas high plains, uh, as a region, um, you know, all the great varietals that I wanted or thought I was going to get, well, guess what? That just all went out the window. So, um, I'm going to have to work with cultivars that I, maybe I wouldn't choose. Um, and, and I'm actually, again, this is where the fun comes back in. So I'm going to have to, I may have to buy Texas Pinot Noir this year. Um, I would have said that's a terrible idea, but you know what? We might find something that is really cool that I may not have pushed myself into in the past. And so, I mean, call me again in a year and and we'll talk about, um, you know, how this all worked out, but I mean, we're going to have to make choices and work with, uh, grapes that we weren't anticipating, uh, even two weeks ago. So, um, we'll see. Um, what have I not asked you about that you think is important to mention, so that people have a full understanding of Wedding Oak. I, I think that if I could, again, grab one thing about, we want to, we want wines that anyone can come in and enjoy. And we also want to make wines that if people 
come in with a preconceived notion of what a Cabernet Sauvignon looks like from anywhere in the, you know, from somewhere else in the world, um, or a GSM or a Roussan, that Texas will not disappoint, you know, that Texas wines will not let you down. That if, if you come in and you see something on the menu and, and say, oh, I've had a Cabernet or a Chardonnay or a Roussan or, um, you know, a Montepulciano, um, that, that they've had from somewhere else, uh, that, that they will have their Texas version and will, will be like, that is just as good or better. And it can be done, you know, it right. Grape growers, right. Winemakers. Uh, when you put those two things together, the results will continue to astound you. And, and that is what we will continue to try to do at Wedding Oak. Mike, I also wanted to ask you about, about the winery incubation program that you have mm-hmm started and um, you've helped some other wineries get off the ground. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So that's um, why earlier I mentioned, I don't know, maybe in two years, something will open a door for me. We'll look at it and jump through it. And that's what happened with the incubation concept. Uh, We had an opportunity to buy a historic building in downtown San Saba, just a few doors down from the winery. And, uh, we talked about why are we buying it? Well, we needed to buy it because it was available. So we, so now what do we do with it? And I just returned from a trip out to Oregon and Washington State and um, had seen some incubation projects out there. The winemakers in Oregon and the project in Walla Walla out at the old airport, things like that. And I, and I was inspired by what I saw just simply that I thought, well, that's a great use of resources. And in, in, on, the, on the drive back from the Northwest, um, in my head, I said, well, that's what I'm going to do with that building. We're going to put a winery in there that's turnkey, ready for someone to occupy that wanted to launch their brand. Um, that they were going to launch their brand in a small town in the northern hill country, but it, it was a place that they didn't have to worry about it, you know, figuring out how to um, build a tasting room or have it equipped or any of that stuff. We did that for them. And then since the winemaking is three doors down, we can make the wine for them uh, and allow them to put their capital into operating expenses and operate that. And that was the concept, and that's what we redid the building for. And uh, we're fortunate enough to have someone from the Lubbock area, that uh, actually Brownfield, um, and uh, they wanted to enter the wine market down here and we had a place for them we were put together and that's where the where the beginning of that concept was beyond that it became our uh, opportunity to take our excess capacity as we grew our business from zero to ten thousand versus our organic growth and and say okay we have a gap there where we can um, fill that capacity with wine for other people. So different than a custom crush, more custom wine tied back to how to operate a tasting room based on our experience and do those sort of things, how to build a wine club and therefore be more of a consultant on a broader business level rather than just making wine for somebody and that's it. So it became a much more integrated approach to it. So that was Old Man Scary Sellers. They were our first client and, uh, 
in Sensaba, and they operated for five years at that location. And then uh, this past year, for multiple reasons, decided to close the door, and we took the building back over. But we've helped uh, three or four other wineries to launch there and continue to help them build their brands. That's great. I'm sure that's uh, tremendously helpful for brands is to not have to worry about a tasting room and learning yeah. everything all at once before trying to get off the ground. Well, yeah, and that's, and that's what happened. I mean, I got an inquiry yesterday that many wineries do. It was somebody looking for a bulk wine or, or some wine to help launch their new brand. Uh, and, you know, we can't do anything for them because we don't have anything right now. <laughs> it's excess uh, with all that's going on with the weather, but we, but we, you know, we, we recognize that that fills a need for people, just like it does for any winery that chooses to use its capacity for those purposes rather than everything being in-house. Now, there will be a time, and that's why we have to expand the capacity, there will be a time and when we run out of that excess capacity for others, everything will be ours or for our own organic needs. So we know that's coming. So we're going to have to expand anyways make some choices at some point on that. What do you think the Texas wine industry needs other than better, more consistent weather? What does Texas need? Is it more grape farmers, more expertise in some business sense? What, what does the industry lack at this point? Well, I think, I think just, I think in all areas it needs it needs improvement in, in um, scope, not just in, in people doing each of those things. People that are, that are better at the business side of it, better at grape growing, uh, better at uh, the distribution of, of material in within the states, huge states, that's no matter about the size of our state, is like having five different countries. You know, and and uh, so the, the ability to move fruit around, to move equipment around, having more vendors located in state that can supply us with the things that we need uh, for that consolidation of, of, of uh, logistics and things like that. I think all of that is part of that growth uh, trajectory. So I think I think that it doesn't matter what aspect of it we, we need to continue to develop. And I think that's why the attraction right now is bringing people in and we're starting to see more and more people Involved. Yeah, that's exciting. And I'm sure you would love to have some more company in San Saba. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I sure appreciate both of you sharing your your expertise and your experiences. And, yeah. and thank, thank you, Shelly, for what you do and bringing these sort of interviews and podcasts back out there. And we appreciate very much the time you put into your research and the dedication to that. And thank you. Seth, I've seen some videos that you've done, so I'm expecting TikTok in the near future. Uh, don't hold your breath. <laughs> Be sure to follow Wedding Oak Winery on Facebook and Instagram. I'd also seen some videos of Seth online, so I asked him about his plans to branch out into new social media platforms. Thanks, Mike and Seth. For even more on Wedding Oak, visit VintageTexas.com for Dr. Russ Kane's article, 
Wedding Oak Winery, Seeing the Future in Red Blends in Roussan for Texas that was published this week. Next, I'm handing out demerits and gold stars. Last time, I introduced a new segment called Demerits and Gold Stars. Each episode, I give out demerits or gold stars to the best and worst things I'm seeing in Texas wine. And I invite your nominations, too. Drop me a line or leave a voicemail to share your thoughts. My gold stars today go to the two wines that received Judges Selection Medals for Texas Red and Texas White at the recent Texom International Wine Awards. I thought it would be interesting for you to hear just a bit more about these wines. So the first gold star for Texas Red went to Spicewood Vineyards Battle of Toro. This is an estate wine for Spicewood, and it's a blend of 50% Tempranillo and 50% Tarriga Nacional. The wine is from the 2017 vintage. Tempranillo, you likely know. It's a Spanish grape that does quite well here in Texas. Tarriga Nacional, or Tarriga for short, is perhaps the best-known red grape in Portugal, where it's often used in port production. In a 2019 article in Decanter, Chris Mercer lays out the reasons why this grape is a rising star. He says that Tarriga has great aging potential, is disease-resistant, and it stands up well to heat. Even though this grapevine is difficult to train and produces little yield, it's certainly one to watch for Texas. So this Battle of Toro has some great label art that features a Portuguese rooster and a Spanish bull. And the wine is called Battle of Toro for a couple of reasons. Tariga can be so dominant that it's always fighting the Tempranillo. And also it refers to the famous battles during the War of Castilian Secession between Portugal and Spain. This history lesson straight from Ron Yates. Ron says that this wine goes back and forth on its aromas and the flavors, like Tariga and Tempranillo are just battling for prominence. The wine was aged for 20 months in 50% new oak, both French and American, and 50% one-year-old oak. So when you pour this wine, you'll see it's super deeply colored in the glass, and it's just full of dark fruit aromas, blueberry, blackberry. I got some black cherry cola and sweet baking spices like cinnamon and clove. But there are also some pronounced notes of really savory spices like pepper. It actually reminded me walking into the Penzi's Spice Shop, and you just get hit with a ton of fresh spices. It's got 14.1% alcohol, and that's perfectly balanced by the fruit characters. The wine has fine tannins, nothing overpowering, but they are present, and it's got juicy acidity and a really pleasant finish. This wine is completely sippable, either with a meal or really just whenever. This was originally planned to just be tasting room only, but I see that it is currently on the Spicewood website at $40, so get it while you can. The next wine to win a judge's selection medal for Texas white wine went to William Chris Vineyards for their 2020 Roussan from La Pradera Vineyards. This vineyard is in Terry County, just down the road from the La Straw Vineyard. It's farmed by the Paddock and Timmins families. Roussan is originally from the Rhone Valley in France, and it's commonly blended with Marsan, as this wine was. More about that in a minute. In France, it's a primary component in white Chateauneuf de Pop. Now it's grown all over the world and widely grown in Texas. In fact, it's the seventh most planted white variety in Texas. Using 2019 figures, I see that there are about 75 bearing acres of Roussan in the state, and Texas Wine Lover Vineyard List shows 32 different vineyards that grow it. 
So back to this specific award-winning Roussan, it is in fact 95% Roussan and 5% Marsan. And the William Chris text sheet says that that 5% was added to increase the wine structure. This was aged in 40% oak fermenter, 15% concrete, and 45% barrel. 10% of those were new French oak barrels, and it was aged for seven months. The alcohol at 13.9% lets you know that it's going to be a fairly full-bodied wine. This wine also went through partial secondary fermentation, otherwise known as malolactic fermentation, to increase the complexity and roundness on the palate. William Chris says that the wine has notes of lemon, apricot, beeswax, and cantaloupe with a clean and refreshing finish. I definitely get that stone fruit aroma, but it's also floral for me. And it's really mouth-filling and it's a palate-coating wine, and the finish is super long. Even though the aromatics are so intense and the palate is full, it finishes with great acidity, and it's completely dry. This is a wine that's going to be great to pair at the table, and honestly, I find it quite a bargain at $32. You can find it on the William Chris Vineyards website. My demerit today goes to lawmakers in Austin who failed to get rid of some of the old Prohibition-era laws that are still on the books. Specifically, they did not pass a bill to allow liquor sales on Sunday. That bill didn't make it out of committee. Of course, it was a mixed bag with this legislature. They did pass the labeling law, which was great. And also, now you can buy beer and wine at 10 a.m. rather than at noon on Sundays. Also, alcohol to go is a thing now but still no liquor on Sundays. If you enjoyed the show, tell someone about it. And if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, why not do that now? That way you won't miss an episode. You can send me your comments, questions, nominations for demerits and gold stars, or ideas for future episodes to texaswinepod at gmail.com or leave me a voicemail, 802-585-1286. Maybe I'll share your comment or question on the next show. And don't forget to follow the podcast at Texas Wine Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Remember, all of the show notes for this episode are at thisistexaswine.com. Big thanks to Matt McGinnis of Big Thirst Marketing for help securing recent podcast guests and also to Texas Wine Lover website and Jeff Cope for helping promote the podcast. Visit TXWineLover.com to help plan your next winery visit. Thanks for listening to this episode of This is Texas Wine. I'll be back soon with another interview and the latest news about Texas wine. My next episode reunites three old friends who were among the first to promote and write about the Texas wine industry. Join me in two weeks to hear from Denise Clark, Matt McGinnis, and Dr. Russ Kane. Cheers, y'all.